Hey, welcome to the Mind Your Health podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in Columbia University. I'll be speaking with some of the leading experts in mental health around the world to learn how we can incorporate principles of lifestyle changes, our faith, as well as some of the leading innovations in mental health to learn how we can live happier and more fulfilled lives. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way. I hope this inspires you and encourages you to mind your health. All right, welcome. I'm so honored today to have a wonderful guest with me. As you know, my name is Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and a consultant for the MBPA's wellness program. And I've had a chance lately to learn more and more about the health of the players and, you know, these mental health initiatives. And I was really, really inspired and impressed by coming across my guest today, Michael Pina, who is a writer for Sports Illustrated, has written for the New York Times. It's just an amazing, amazing writer that he gets to spend some time today in between the finals. And I'll get his take about, you know, who he's got, whether it's Sons and Four, as uh, you know, as that fan <laughs> says, or, you know, or, or what we got going on. So, Michael, thank you so, so much for being with me today. Of course, Mina. Thank you so much for reaching out in the first place. It's an honor. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So, you know, we're going to, I'm going to share the link for the piece with folks that are going to watch this video, but give them a little bit of a heads up. You, you wrote this really incredible, well-researched piece about the strain on players here. That's not just, we've heard maybe some really outspoken players, as you mentioned here, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan. Um, but I was curious if we can start with, you know, what made you curious enough to sort of delve, do a sort of a deep dive into this into the, for players and to look at not just okay, one guy is saying he's battling depression, but really the impact on the whole league and all the multifactorial things that are going into place here. Sure. So, I mean, for me, I think it goes back several years where I've obviously NBA players are human beings and they deal with a lot of different sources of pressure and anxiety. And so I've always been interested in diving into how that impacts them on the court, how that impacts their day-to-day lives. And I felt like this season was a particularly ripe opportunity to really go deep because of all of the ridiculous circumstances and conditions that the players had to face. So you have combining factors and there's two big umbrellas or big tents that I kind of viewed as I was reporting the story. One is obviously the pandemic and COVID-19 and playing in empty arenas and traveling around the country as thousands of people are dying every day and their communities are being ravaged by this disease. And there's a sense of loss and literal loss felt by many players from family members to just people that they know who have passed away because of the disease. They had to get tested twice a day for it, which was a real mental strain on them for just the sense of there's no days off. Usually during an NBA season, you get days off where you don't have to go to the practice facility. You don't have a practice. You don't have a game. You don't have a shoot around. That didn't really exist this season. You always had to go to the practice facility to get tested. So you were working every single day. And I think that that was a strain on players. And then the other big tent of it all was the social justice movement. And Hmm. Obviously, 75% of NBA players are Black Americans and their experience coming off of, you can call it a racial reckoning, you can call it whatever you want. There's a lot of different labels out there. But after George Floyd was murdered, 
obviously there was, that was a very, as a Black American, dealing with racialized violence, dealing with discrimination and systemic injustice, that was at the forefront of a lot of different conversations and that's their reality. So that is also a factor here where I think that that impacts mental health for sure. And that has impacted Black Americans and their mental health for decades and generations previous, but it was really loud and in your face right now at this time, particularly for players who are tasked with, okay, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to give your money to different organizations? Are you going to speak up every single time an unarmed Black man or woman is shot and killed by the police? And that is a strain on them. So those are the two combining factors that I felt were very tied into this season. Mm. And that's why I thought that it was a good time to dive in and do some research about it. Absolutely. And I, and I think when talking here about the social justice element of it, I, you know, when, when you mentioned here the additional strain or the pressure, sometimes we're, we're used to hearing about we're advocating for the athlete to have the platform, right? More than an athlete, not just shut up and dribble. Mm-hmm. But we sometimes maybe as the lay public don't always appreciate how that can be the, the platform there is, is a gift, certainly. And it's something that's, that's powerful, but, but it comes with a lot of responsibilities. Can, can you speak to that a little bit, kind of the pressure that an athlete can feel of when to speak out and when not? I know, you know, there's been situations where, you know, LeBron, for example, has been asked to speak about something and he said, well, I, I got to do my research on this. I got to see if I, you know, can really comment on it. What's that like for the athlete who feels like, well, people are looking to me one way or another and I have to say something, but what do I say? What's that pressure like? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing you hit it on the head, I think, is doing research and gaining information about a lot of different issues that, you know, you can speak to your personal experience, sure, and maybe an experience where you were discriminated against based on the color of your skin, but you might not know the statistics of of police violence in this country Mm -hmm. or voter suppression specifics, or there's just myriad different issues that relate to racialized oppression in this country that a lot of people don't know, including NBA players. And so, um, you know, I spoke to a gentleman who works for the Sacramento Kings and their player development, who's essentially a therapist for the players. And before they were sent to the bubble, he gave them, you know, the players had different slogans on the back of their jerseys that they could choose, social justice slogans, different words that they thought best represented how they felt about everything that was going on. And he would talk to players, ask them why they chose the slogan, and then refer them to different reading materials that he thought were relevant to what the word was or what the slogan was that they chose. And that was a way to kind of help prepare them for when the media comes to them and ask them, hey, why did you choose this? They can speak on it very with a more broad um, or educated uh, view. So... Mm -hmm. I think, you know, reading in depth about everything, just being confident enough to speak about it in public, which is not easy. These are basketball players. They're not community activists or anything like that. They're not politicians. And so this is an added responsibility to why they are where they are, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them took it upon themselves to get educated and, and hats off to them for doing so. Absolutely. And you can sort of tell the in the evolution of the league as, as players are becoming more and more educated and learning more about issues and speaking from more informed perspective. And to that point in preparation, you know, there's always been obviously an element of physical preparation. There's the rehab before a game, after all the players have extensive routines. 
did you get a sense that as players are learning more about mental health with more people speaking out, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, I'm, you know, I know when, when we spoke with Aaron Gordon, he was mentioning something about now, you know, he's doing a lot of this mental preparation, this mental health prep work. Are you seeing that that's becoming more common in the league? Players are realizing that you have to have your body kind of ready for the game, but also have your mind more ready for the game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you brought up LeBron before, and LeBron has been big on meditation for mm. the majority of his career. Well, he's been around for a very long time, so I don't want to say majority, but for, for quite a bit before heading into this season, for sure, he's been a big on meditation. A lot of players have been big on meditation, you know, breathing exercises, just different ways to keep themselves in the present and, mm. and not worry about the past, anything that's happened before not worry about what they not stress about what is going to happen or what can happen with regards to anything in their life be it a upcoming contract or you know a personal matter you know trying to deal with an issue that they have at home with a partner or their children or anything like that so i think they've used a lot of different different exercises to try to cultivate mindfulness and stay in the present mm -hmm. and so that's a big part of having success in the NBA where, you know, every play, every second, every movement that you make, every inch matters in wins or losses. And there's, uh, there's a lot of pressure on these players to perform every night. And part of that pressure, you know, would you say uh, those movements, not only are they important, but they're also highly critiqued afterwards, right? You have these mm -hmm. days and days of uh, people kind of analyzing your play and, and in preparing for our discussion, I, I reached out to the Colin Coward to kind of, to, and he, he, he mentioned that one of the things that kind of add to this pressure is, you know, the social media element of it, that how the players are, because they're always on it and they know kind of what's being said about them. Some players we know are more, you know, Kevin Durant, for example, is kind of the, the classic with the burner accounts and these, uh, you know, funny things that, uh, that have happened. But he's, you know, he's very vocal about that. He is, he's unapologetic. Do you feel that the scrutiny to that comes from social media for players has been something that's been an added layer of pressure for them? Yeah, I mean, just speaking as a person who's not in the NBA, social media is, this is my, you know, my personal opinion, but it's like kind of terrible. Like I, I'll write something about a team that's negative or a player that's negative and my mentions or my DMs will load up with things that are completely inappropriate. And I'm just kind of like, like it, it brushes off my shoulder, honestly, because whatever, but the magnitude that I experience is not even close to what mm. you can take any player that you want. Paul George is probably the most famous mm. example right now, just from what he went through in the bubble mm. um, and what he spoke about even recently about the criticism that he still receives. And um, that was a big topic of discussion because the criticism that he receives is on his phone, a lot of it. And so if you don't look at your phone, which you don't have to do, you don't see the criticism. And I know that social media is embedded in our day-to-days in a way that is unfortunately critical in mm. a lot of ways. But yeah, it's it's really tough. It's really difficult to just constantly see not only criticism, but see undue praise. You Like <laughs> these people who treat you like you are a deity or a god <laughs> and you're not, you're a man, you're a basketball player. And so I think that it cuts both ways where there's a two extremes that aren't really, I wouldn't say either is healthy um, when taken at the level and the volume that NBA players receive it. That's, that's very well put. I guess we don't realize 
the roller coaster that we can sometimes put NBA players on because it's you can fall from grace pretty quick. You can go from playoff P to pandemic P very quickly, right? If the fans are not kind to, to your performance. And then in, in terms of not just the social media part, but being part of the media community, one of the big stories these days, I know it's not necessarily an NBA story, but you know, with Naomi Osaka and her piece in time and kind of that whole discussion. What's been your take as the other side of the, uh, you know, from the media when players are saying sometimes even just interacting and answering questions is tough and anxiety provoking. And I don't know if I really want to do it. And I, there was a lot of criticism for Kyrie when, you know, when he didn't have uh, media availability and things like that. What has that been like sort of for you guys? When <laughs> I'm sure it's frustrating as well, because you want to be able to do your job and talk to the player. It's really difficult to answer this question from one point of view. I have to kind of split it in two. Mm-hmm. The person, me as a person, like I'm totally understanding of Naomi Osaka not wanting to speak to the media because it exacerbates anxiety or any other mental health issue that she's going through. And she shouldn't even have to explain mm-hmm. what the mental health issue is, as she wrote about in that timepiece. It's a private matter, right? And it's very important that that is a priority as well. And I think that on a human level, she shouldn't have to speak to the media if it's detrimental to her mental health. It's very simple. She's a tennis player. The journalist in me right now, access to professional athletes is not at a great place. And the ability to communicate with athletes and have honest conversations is increasingly difficult from Mm. our perspective. And so when you kind of take away those opportunities more and more, be it, and I know the press conference is a little antiquated, as Naomi Mm. said, and I, I don't necessarily care either way about that specific structure that's in place between and the relationship between the media and, and players. But in general, I think the media should have access to players in different ways. And right now, you know, speaking just openly as an NBA journalist, like there's talk about, you know, I saw Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors say that his locker room, the Golden State Warriors locker room has never been more peaceful than it was this season because the media was not allowed in it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking as someone who's been in NBA locker rooms for years, like hundreds and hundreds of times, those experiences for me personally are critical to do my job. And Mm. this year was really hard to do my job Mm. because we didn't have access. We couldn't go to games. We couldn't go into locker rooms, talk to players. And it's not even like my recorder's out and I'm interviewing you. It's just like getting to know these people as people and, and discussing things with them and seeing what makes them tick and asking questions that have nothing to do with anything. That's where some of my best story ideas have come from. That's it's just it's 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 integral. So mm-hmm. if that were to be eliminated, I think that that would do it be a detriment to this profession and a detriment, honestly, to fans who want to see other sides of players than the sides that players only want to show. If that makes any sense, it does. And and there's certainly sort of these two sides to that discussion. One, I know you know Stephen A. and and Max Kellerman have had that discussion and said, well part of the reality here is there is a revenue element to this, right? And part of the the reason the media is doing what it does is that, you know, basketball is a product and you as a, as a person are not the product, but you're contributing to the sales thereof. And, you know, that ultimately is, is financial gain for you as a player as well. So maybe fighting it that hard is in some ways sort of counterproductive. Did you sense that there are other players who maybe don't agree with 
Raymond Green's perspective, because in the sense that there are some players who, the more they speak to you and the more they speak to media, they can sort of help clarify the narrative where there's not as much guessing as to what's going on in the locker room. Right, exactly. And I mean, one way to look at it, I don't know if this is too cynical, but it's like it's free advertising for a <laughs> player, right? You know, I work for Sports Illustrated and later today I'm speaking to a player who's competing in the NBA finals hmm. and he has his own platform, obviously. He's a player in the NBA finals, but getting to answer the questions that I'm going to ask him in a Q&A format for Sports Illustrated is not nothing for him. Mm. And I think the people who read that interview will get to see hopefully a different perspective of something that he's willing to share. And so, yeah, I think that there are still players for sure who are willing to speak, who want to speak, who want to have conversations. But in the sense that securing his interviews is not the easiest thing. And so on a, just on a general, more consistent basis, like being able to go into locker rooms, I think is very important. I think this is a very complicated issue that we could probably go on and on and discuss for like hours and hours and hours. And I have a lot of deep thoughts about it. But generally speaking, I think that the relationship between the media and NBA players and spe specifically is important. And mm. to see it deteriorate as it has recently for all these different circumstances has been a little troubling and I hope that it can kind of find its footing going forward. I hope so too and I, and I definitely want to hear more of those deep thoughts maybe some of those will have will have offline because I think that's it's a valuable and it's, it's an ongoing discussion right that that's going to kind of have to go back and forth but maybe we can uh, switch gears a bit back to part of the the strain that's been on players the other sort of half that you mentioned here was the whole COVID element, the, uh, you know, the isolation of it all. Can you speak to a little bit of, we, we know sort of now, since the whole world was in this COVID prison for, for a while, but I don't know, we, I don't think we understand the, the level of isolation that players had, whether it was in the bubble or when they came out on the road and kind of being not able, not able to see family and friends. Can you just speak a little bit to what that was like and kind of what players mentioned to you as in terms of how much of an impact it had on them? Yeah, sure. So there were health and safety protocols that were instituted when the season began. Obviously, the season was not going to be in a bubble and the pandemic was still raging pretty strong. We did not have vaccines available at all when the season began. The season, When the season began, the league saw a lot of positive tests and a lot of players were contracting COVID more than they anticipated given the rules that were in place, which were not that strict. So they eventually were forced to, with, with negotiations with the Players Association, were forced to kind of tighten things and make things a little more strict. And what that entailed was essentially, when you're at home, no one can really come over and visit you unless they have taken, I believe, I might get this wrong, one or two COVID, they test not negative for, for COVID once or twice within a 48-hour period before the visit, which... Mm -hmm. If you can imagine just going to see your friend or something like that, that's, that's pretty detrimental to a visit. You had, when you were on the road, and also the players were not supposed to, when they were at home, they were not supposed to leave their homes and go to restaurants. They were not allowed to, you know, obviously go to clubs or go to wherever, really. They were basically confined to their homes for a, a lengthy stretch. And when on the road, the same thing applied to being in a hotel room where you literally were not allowed to like go on a walk 
for, I think it was like, a, I want to say a four week or six week stretch. They eventually loosened it to where you could step outside for an hour um, and go on a walk from the, your hotel room. Mm -hmm. But this all also applied to players who, one of the things that I kind of honestly learned in reporting the story was that of not a majority, but a lot of NBA players who have families do not live with their families mm. during the season. When you think about it, it kind of makes sense because there's, you can't just uproot your family continuously. If you are one year I'm playing for the Milwaukee Bucks, the next year I'm playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers, the next year I'm playing for the Miami Heat. Mm. I'm not going to just take my children out of school every single year. Um, right. They're going to live where they live. And so these restrictions also applied to families. And normally you would have the opportunity to fly in your family every so now and then to visit you, visit your condo or your home or wherever you are in your host city, or even fly home as a player um, mm -hmm. on a day off and hang out with your family. Mm -hmm. But neither was allowed during lengthy stretches of this season. And that played a humongous toll, obviously, on a lot of these fathers and husbands hmm. uh, who are not able to see their families and their children grow. And if you're having, you can imagine like even having just like a, a disagreement or an argument with your, your wife or your, your, your partner and not being able to see them in person for right. weeks and kind of sort it out in person. So I think that those were really difficult to, to reconcile for players. And yeah, one of the, one of the aspects that really just surprised me was that, they live apart from their families mm. and their teams were basically their families for better or worse for these stretches. And that's just really, that's really difficult to deal with. Yeah. It's difficult to imagine for us to, to be able to, to kind of picture not living with a family and kind of have really the level of isolation where you're, I know Michelle Robertson, you know, you quoted her in the piece of saying we've kind of taken away sometimes the support, the whole support network of these players. And then we wonder kind of why their performance is suffering and, I think you mentioned as well that there, you know, Aaron Gordon also mentioned this in your piece that there is real on the court implications because of this, right? Like you, you know, you'll commit a foul 80 feet away from the basket or you'll do something that's, that's not right. Do you think teams, coaching staff are beginning to sort of understand how the, the emotional toll of these things, for example, we understand if Giannis's leg is hyperextended, so he may score 40 tonight or he may score four, we'll give him a break, you know, we don't know because his leg looked like it might've been, uh, torn ACL or something. Is there a sense though of an appreciation maybe during this past season of, hey, maybe Kyrie wasn't around for a couple of days and we thought some people are calling for his retirement uh, because there's an emotional strain there uh, and we sort of understand that. Or is the mental health element not really considered or perceived as like an injury just yet? Is it still kind of? You know, I think that to be frank, a lot of teams, so Two years ago, the NBA required that a mental health professional be basically on staff for the team and available to players, which was a big step. It was long suggested that this happened. And some teams have been doing it for years, but not all. And then it became a requirement. I think teams right now still don't know how to embrace mental health into their organization's kind of culture, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Mm -hmm. And be more proactive in dealing with it than reactive. And I spoke to uh, someone with the Minnesota Timberwolves who had a quote that was very similar to that, that effect in the piece. And 
every player is dealing with something and to ignore it just because you can't see it is detrimental to them as people, but it's also, you know, selfishly for the team detrimental to the team's ability to win basketball games. So there's a really interesting, sometimes these are competing forces, honestly, where it's like, sometimes they're, they're joined together and, and on the same side, but sometimes those two are kind of competing where it's like, we need to make sure this person is as healthy as possible, but also at the same time, like we're trying to win basketball games. This is a billion dollar industry. Right. So I think teams are still trying to figure We're at the early stages, basically, I think mm-hmm. of all of this, uh, you know, the, the NBA, MBPA's wellness, mental health and wellness program only started in 2018. So right. as teams try to kind of fold mental health and wellness into their day to day, I think there's been some bumps for sure with some organizations and a lot of teams didn't want to speak to me for the story because I mean, I can't, I can't speak for them on why they declined, but in speaking to some other people who don't work for the teams, uh, it kind of leads me to believe that they don't exactly know what to say about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's still, which is understandable, I think from a certain perspective, but I I already said this, but we are in the early stages of, Mm -hmm of dealing with this and there's no blueprint, there's no guidebook really on how to fold it into what the organizations are trying to do um, Mm. in a way that also allows them to be successful as basketball teams. That's definitely fascinating here because it seems to be there's sort of a big difference team organization specific, right? I I remember speaking with one of the, the mental health staff for the Nets. He mentioned that part of the vulnerability or part of the difficulty he's sort of seeing is that players who are not the superstar players, but sort of more of a role player, sometimes have difficulty even seeking help because you don't want to almost label yourself as someone who is semi-injured, right? You're just, you're trying to get your, you know, this, this boils down to kind of playing time and making sure that you're, you know, you're available. So I, I can definitely understand and appreciate um, what you're saying there. And I think maybe I don't want to take a much, too much more of your time. I know you've got to speak with NBA players the rest of the day and stuff, but I, I think the fact here where you're saying this is in the early stages lets me circle back again to how grateful, you know, I am to you really as, as someone who's in the industry, who's a professional, who's, you know, a fantastic writer and journalist for shining a light on this, be able to say, Hey, we, as the public need to sort of have an understanding of players that we can sometimes idolize or hate, you know, depending on who you root for. And I was curious, maybe as we can sort of wrap, wrap up our time, what would you say are some takeaways that you'd want the average fan, maybe who's in the arena to know about the player that they are rooting for, rooting against, you know, when they're in the heat of the moment, maybe a few beers in, they may not always remember this, but, uh, but what would you want them to hopefully consider in the future? Yeah. You know, I think one of the more frustrating elements of feedback that I received after writing the piece is so what they're millionaires. And that's just, I honestly thought that we'd move past that as Mm -hmm. a society that, I'm sure everyone who commented or sent me an email about that has had personally suffered from some type of mental health ailment or Mm -hmm. anxiety or knows someone in their life, a family member or a close friend who has Mm -hmm. um, suffered. So that was a little sad to see, I guess I, I, I would say. And I hope that fans understand that these are human beings that they are rooting for and mm-hmm. money does not equal a smooth road in life and does not equal happiness. You can still wake up every day 
extremely depressed despite making $15 million a year. That is, these are not mutually exclusive. So um, I think that that is just one broad takeaway that I hope people who read the story come away with that, particularly this past season and going forward in some respects, the pressures and the, the constraints that NBA players felt and continue to feel are very real and should not be ignored or neglected in any way. Wise words, Michael. Thank you so much. This is something I hope that folks will will take away from it here. And I hope we can continue this conversation again, because as you said, this is kind of the, we're at the infancy of, of this discussion for sports, but I have a feeling it's going to be more, more content or more things to kind of unravel over time here with this. So just once again, I, I thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me and to shed light on this. And thank you for writing this, this really incredible piece. I'm going to make sure the link is there, you know, for our viewers. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the day here with the probing questions in the NBA finals. And before I let you go, I gotta, you know, I gotta ask you, I gotta ask you, you know, who you think, who you got, and what do you think is going to be, uh, if you're comfortable, you know, speaking for that. Of course. No, of course. Uh, my bread and butter here. You know, I picked Suns in six before the series. They're up 2-0 right now. I feel pretty confident about that. Although Giannis in game two made me pretty nervous because I mm. think he's by far the best player in the series. Mm. And we'll see what happens in Milwaukee. If they, they could easily win two in a row and make it very interesting going back to Phoenix in game five. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm not backing off my, my Suns in six prediction. I like it, man. Sons and six. That's a, that's a, that's a solid one. I would guarantee it if I had the chuck button. That sounds, uh, <laughs> that sounds like the way to go. Thank you so much again, Michael. And, um, and appreciate you taking the time and we're definitely going to speak soon. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please take a second to rate and review as this helps us reach more people. And until then, please don't forget to mind your health. See you soon.